It's important for writers to get comfortable with reading the language of licenses, especially the what's called the granting clause, the granting of the permission. And I am convinced, and I, I'm an evangelist on this issue, that anybody who can master character, pacing, the language of writing, can learn to read these clauses well enough to protect themselves. Welcome to The Author Biz, the show that's focused on helping you build your business as an author. I'm Stephen Campbell, and this is episode number 33. Wherever you are, however you listen, thanks for spending some of your time with me today. Take a minute with me before we get started today and think of your author business. Now imagine that business like a narrow three-story house. The third floor of this house is where you store the awards you've won for your writing, the movie posters from the popular films that have been made from your books, maybe an Emmy Award or two for the television shows based on that breakout series you wrote. And on the far wall, the one next to the big floor-to-ceiling window, is a shelf filled with first editions of each book you've ever published. The second floor, let's call the second floor your writing space. It's your sanctuary. Your favorite writing or maybe editing music is playing through hidden speakers. The comfortable chair that you spend so much of your time in every day sits in front of your desk. There's a row of shelves filled with your favorite books on the craft of writing. This is the floor where you put in the work to build the stories that allow for the possibility of the awards and memorabilia on the third floor. Are you still with me? Can you see it? Now think for a minute. What's on the first floor? What's the foundation for this wonderfully sustaining author business that you've built? The first floor is where you store your business records, the tax returns that showed losses for the first few years and now show significant profits. It houses your contracts, licensing agreements, copyright and trademark information. That first movie option, it's sitting in the file cabinet to your left. The first floor is the foundation for everything you've done as a professional writer. And that's what we're talking about on this episode, the foundation of your business. Today's guest is business attorney and author Helen Sedwick, and we're discussing the nuts and bolts of starting your author business. We'll be covering topics like controlling your work as an author, keeping yourself out of court, avoiding scams from the trolls that circle beginning writers, and being confident that you've set your author business up correctly so you can take advantage of the tax deductions that are available to authors. We're talking about building a solid foundation for your work so you can have the confidence of knowing that once you start filling that third floor with awards, that the house you've built will stand up to the storms that face every business. If you like what I'm doing here at The Author Biz, will you do me a favor? One of the things that matters most to a podcast right now is getting ratings and comments in iTunes. Please let me know if you like what's going on here. Head over to iTunes and give the podcast a comment or a rating. And if you want to get everything we do, including future episodes, head over to theauthorbiz.com and click on the big green Join Us button. Show notes for this episode, with links to everything we've discussed, can be found at theauthorbiz.com slash Helen. Now let's get on with the show. My guest today is author and attorney Helen Sedwick. Helen writes historical fiction, and she's a business attorney with over 30 years of experience practicing in Northern California. Oh, 
And she's written what I think is one of the must-own books for any author, The Self-Publisher's Legal Handbook. Helen, welcome to the Author Biz. Glad to be here. Now, before we started recording today, I mentioned how much I enjoyed your book, and you told me some exciting news that you just heard within the last day or so uh, about uh, some recognition that the book has received. Yes, the current issue of Publishers Weekly, Betty Sargent has a column, and she listed the five top book resources for independent authors, and mine was one of those, one of the top five. That is exciting, and I couldn't agree more that it should be there. And I, I, will, I will take – I'll disagree a little bit with the title because I think all authors should have this book, whether they're self-published or traditionally published. Well, thank you. I do try to cover a lot of bases um, from – understanding the contracts that you're signing to how to use real people in your writing and how to negotiate and what to consider when you're entering into a collaboration agreement. So I do try to cover a lot of the issues that writers face. It is packed full of great information. Well, let's get started. Tell listeners a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this book. Well, I have been an attorney for 30 years, but I've also been a closet novelist, working away at short stories and my creative writing. In 2012, I decided to self-publish a novel I had been working on for quite a while, Coyote Winds. And I tremendously enjoyed the process. It was great to be in control of the process uh, as compared to the years of sending query letters and and waiting for responses. Mm -hmm. And as I went through the process of self-publishing that novel, I became aware that there was something missing in the market. Among all the books and websites talking about how to self-publish, there was no nuts and bolts legal handbook on the process. And I knew I could write this book. So I, about a year ago, I sat, a year and a half ago, I sat down and started working on this book and worked very hard, had it edited to make it as readable and as user-friendly as possible. And last June, I released the self-publisher's legal handbook. To wide acclaim, I've seen a lot of people that really like this book, and I, of course, am one of them. Um, the, the things that you cover in the book, it's, it's really a soup-to-nuts manual for all of the legal things that can impact you as an author, whether it be traditionally published or self-published. Um, let's sort of dig into some of those right away. There, there's an acronym that you use early on in the book, um, CAM, C-A-M. Can you explain to us what that is? Yes. Uh, it helps when you're approaching something as, which, with, with the wide-ranging issues of publishing or self-publishing to have kind of goals set in mind. So I, would, I picked three goals to keep in mind when you're making all the various decisions. C is for controlling your work. You want to understand what you own, and how to not lose it by signing the right contract. So I talk about controlling both your copyright, your pricing, your design, that ultimately is going to be the most satisfying if you control your work from soup to nuts. The next one is a avoiding uh, lawsuits and scams. <laughs> Uh, there are certain risks that, that writers take when they publish their work. 
it ranging from infringement to defamation, invasion of privacy. So I wanted to educate authors on what those risks are and how to minimize them. Mm-hmm. I don't. I. I don't think authors should take no risks. I think the world is a better place because writers are taking risks. But let's understand what those risks are and take the ones that are necessary and not take the ones that are not necessary. And then uh, writers, mailboxes, in inboxes are inundated with offers for all kinds of services that promise to make you a bestseller. I wanted to give authors... Uh, some, I, some skeptical eyes, mm-hmm. tools at some of these scams. Like some of them are just myths. They just they do they give you the service, but they don't do much for your sales. Uh, educate them on what's out there and what to watch out for. And the last one is M for maximizing tax deductions. If you set up your writing business properly and you treat it as a business, then you're in a much better position for deducting your losses from other income. And I go into that in some detail in the book. Okay, thank you. That's that's a great framework for the book. And and then you really get into it. So I'd, I'd like to just start, and I'm, I'm going to ask you questions, take as much time as you want to answer them. But let's start out with the business, the idea that when you're an author, you are in business and you may want to formally form a business or you may just want to run your author business as a business. Talk us through the different ways of doing that, uh, the pluses and minuses of both, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Uh, it. If you are treating your writing as a business and certainly going into self-publishing or traditional publishing, freelancing, it's a business, then for tax reasons, for, to, to get some tax benefits, it's important to treat it like a business. The tax, the tax code encourages people to start businesses, but if you don't set up your operations protectly, you can't take I'm sorry, correctly, you can't take advantage of those tax breaks. One thing many writers wonder is, should they incorporate or form an LLC? Mm -hmm. It depends on your state, because it depends how expensive it is in your state. You don't have to do it. Like in California, I discourage people from setting up a corporation or an LLC at the beginning, because it costs $800 a year. Really? And it does. It's very wow. expensive. Okay. So it doesn't make sense. If you're setting it up for to protect yourself from potential liability, you can actually buy business liability insurance out here for less than $800 a year. And, and insurance provides you lawyers and defense. It does a lot more for you than, in, than incorporating. In other states where, it, how, much is, how much is it to be a corporation or an LLC in Florida? It's $150 a year. Okay, so there it may make more sense to set up a corporation um, if, it's, if it's not cost prohibitive. But whether you set yourself up as a corporation, LLC, or you don't, in which case you're operating a sole proprietorship, you should get a separate employer ID number from the IRS. You should get a sales tax certificate. It's called different things in different states. If you're operating under a 
business name that's different from your entity name or your personal name. You need to file a DBA. And most importantly, you need to keep your financial records separate and your finances separate and keep good records. If you treat your writing as a business, then if you have losses in your first few years, which you probably will, and you have a reasonable intent to make a profit, then you can prepare and file a Schedule C, which is for uh, running a separate business with your taxes. And you may, if, and let's say you have losses of two thousand dollars in a year, you can then take those losses against other income. If you don't treat your writing as a business and the IRS considers it a hobby, then you can't deduct those losses from other income. You can only deduct those losses from writing income, which is quite a limitation. I also think it's important that you start to see your writing as a business. It will change how you approach it, how you commit time and resources to it and really takes you to that extra step of being a writer. Now, you, you mentioned a lot of things in here, the federal ID number, the sales tax number, um, a Schedule C, filing a Schedule C tax return. Um, it, that sounds complicated, but it's not that complicated. As uh, I've, I, I set up a business for my writing a year ago, so I've, I'm, all this is fairly fresh in my mind. And I think it took me maybe 10 minutes online to research where to get the federal ID number and then to get it. Um, that was a fairly simple process. The, the sales tax was a little bit more complicated, but not much. In the book, I give, and give links and I give information. People can do this in an afternoon. Mm-hmm. And if you do it right from the start, particularly setting up uh, you know, separate bookkeeping, it can be very simple. It can just be a legal pad. But bookkeeping measures from the beginning, when the, when the dollar amounts are small and you set that up right at the beginning, it's just going to make your life simpler in the long run. And a Schedule C, filing a Schedule C, that's a part of your, the 1040 that most of us file at the end of the year anyway. It's just a, it's a separate form for the 1040. Am I right about that? It's, that's correct. Okay. And and if you get, if you get either a pro, a computer program, or if you work with a tax preparer, they're very familiar with that form. You also talked, you talk about the, you talked about the sales tax certificate. Getting a business license is, is also something that people might not think about. That's right. And that's going to be different in every single community. Yes. So you really have to go and you have to look, search business license and put in the name of your city or town or county. Um, unfortunately, there's no uniformity on business licenses. Some writers will need it. Many writers will not. And there's nothing I can do to help you help explain that except to say search. Yeah, and, and, and the way you the way you explained it in the book, just the way you explained it there is perfect. If you just put those search terms in, you'll get the answer. Yeah. And you know, it, it's probably going to be something between $25 a year and $60 a year. Um, and you get a little certificate, you can put it in a frame and call yourself a business. <laughs> okay, now we need a company name. If whether we're doing this, whether we're forming a a corporation or an LLC, or we're just running it as a Schedule C business, we need a company name. What do we? What should we go through to do that? 
you want a company name that's unique to you. It could be your name with the word press or publication after it, but that's not, for most people, that's not terribly exciting. Uh, so let's say if you were doing travel books, you might do Rickshaw Press. Or if you're doing new age books, something with a spiritual name, hopefully you'll find a name that that's a marketing tool, that it, it has some kind of spin or meaning to it. But, but to make sure that that name is not in use by somebody else, I give some suggestions on how to do a trademark search mm-hmm. and also a domain name search. Uh, that's probably going to be the fastest way to determine if a name is available because you want your domain to be easy to find and you to be easy to find. Once you've settled on a name, then this is uniform throughout the country. You need to file what's called a fictitious business name statement with your local county. Again, it's a simple form the cost should be under $100, and there are many services that will do it for you. It's certainly much simpler than doing it yourself. I use the DBA store. DBA is an expression that's short for doing business as. Mm-hmm. So that's how you claim that name. And you need to do that if you're going to get checks made out to that business name because the bank is going to want to see your fictitious business name statement before they'll cash those checks. I don't generally recommend that writers register the trademark to their company name at least at first. They will have a common law trademark in that company name once they go into business selling goods or services to the public. Registering a trademark is relatively expensive. I, even though they've brought the prices down, I think it's still $250. And generally, you need some expert help in sub- preparing and managing the application process. Again, I spill out a lot of this out in more detail in my book, but it's just to let people know that a DBA or fictitious business name filing is required but a trademark registration is um, not required, and it's more additional expense and additional protection. And you mentioned the term, I think you used the term common something trademark. C- common law trademark. Okay, and that, that you have that as soon as you start using the mark. Am I correct about that? That is correct. Okay. Now, I wish I had read your book prior <laughs> to filing my DBA thing locally. And I wish I had known about the DBA store because while it was not difficult to get the DBA, it was astonishingly hard to place an ad in the local newspaper to do this because it, it, there aren't a lot of classified ads anymore. So it was, that, was, that was the hardest part for me was just placing an ad. So I, I wish I could have paid someone to do that for me because it took an inordinate amount of time. Yes. Yeah, so the process is you usually have to be – you have to – file a particularly worded statement in the classified section of a a newspaper for three weeks, and you have to record with a county recorder. So it's a lot of chasing around. All right. Now, something else that most of us need to go through as beginning authors, especially if we're self-publishing, is we'll hire someone to do things like cover design, and we'll hire someone to edit the books. And you point out very well in the 
in in your book that w- when the amount we pay them exceeds a certain a certain threshold, we're required to give them a 1099 form at the end of the year. And to get that 1099 form, there are things you have to do, and there's timing when you should do all this. So can you walk us through that? Yes. The threshold number as of now, as of today, is $600. If you're going to be hiring an individual to perform services for you and you're going to be paying that individual $600 or more, you should ask them for a W-9 at the beginning of the contract. A W-9 is where they provide their social security number or their federal tax ID number. Then in January of the following year, you're required to report what you've paid this independent contractor on a 1099 miscellaneous. And then that form, you give copies of it to the independent contractor and you send them in to the IRS as well. And if you live in a state which has income tax, which is almost every state, there are equivalent forms in your state. That's what the law is. And particularly if you want to then claim that amount that you've paid to the independent contractor as a tax deduction, as a business expense, you're definitely going to have to have taken care of that process. And it's a lot easier to take care of that process before before the work is done and before you pay them than it is after. Yes, it, it's because some will balk. Some independent <laughs> contractors will balk. And these forms are not complicated. They're both half-page forms. Mm-hmm. You, know, you fill in about four or five lines is about it. Yes, um, some independent contractors may not be reporting all their income, Um I recommend that you don't participate in that. <laughs> but then again, I'm a lawyer, so I'm going to re- I'm going to recommend that people you know follow follow the tax law in particular. Right, and we do want to be able, especially for editing, that can that can add up to a significant amount of money, and we want to be able to deduct that either against the royalties or if it's over and above the royalties, we want to be able to take it as a loss. Absolutely. And these are the steps to go through. And again, this will also be running your writing as a business and write, running it properly as a business. And again, supports your claim to the IRS that this is a business. Now, you don't have to give a 1099 to a corporation. So if, so if you hire Book Baby or Create Space or another company, you don't have to give them 1099s. It's only to U.S. individuals. Uh, same if you hire a designer or an editor who's out of the country. You don't have to give them a 1099. And, and so this takes us back to one of the, the points that you make again and again in the book, the importance of keeping good records. Because none of these things are overly complicated as long as you're keeping track of everything. Absolutely. Um, As I mentioned in the book, I'm convinced that more people end up getting in trouble with with the IRS because they lack records than for fraud. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep, just get a file box and 
keep track, keep print out your receipts and keep them. Uh, the IRS likes printed receipts, not electronic ones. So at some point you're going to have to print them. I'm also of an age where I like everything in print. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just, you just keep track of things and it will, it will save you money if you keep receipts and keep track of these costs. And I, I want to get into, you gave some examples uh, about copyrights or licenses for images. And I want to get to that later um, okay. because some of what I read scared me a little bit. So <laughs> I, I, I want to I get back to that. But again, all of this stuff sounds complicated. None of it really is. It's just to do this, then do this, then do this. And I loved your idea of just getting a, a, a file cabinet or a file box right away because then you're in business. You've got a box where you're storing these records. It's a physical thing and it's, it, it feels like you're in business. And it should be bigger than a shoebox. That was a traditional <laughs> thing. It should be, there are all these plastic, I have, I have, that's what I have for my writing business versus my law business. I have these plastic, brightly colored file boxes and um, I don't, I, sometimes there's a pile of paper on top and every once in a while I go through and I put them in the right slots. Let's go into copyright now because I think that makes sense and, and just, okay. just a high level. What's a copyright? Who owns a copyright? What is protected by a copyright? Just give us a high-level education. Certainly. Well, a copyright is created as soon as you put a, your words or your images into a fixed medium, which can be a piece of paper or a computer. Uh, anything from which those words can be read or the image can be seen. Uh, it used to be that you had to register and mark the work with a C circle and the date, but that's no longer required. The copyright applies automatically. A copyright means that you have the nearly exclusive right to publish, reprint, revise, create derivative products, perform th those words or that creation. There are some exceptions for fair use, which is for review and commentary and parody, but, but by and large, you control the use of your copyrighted work. And for the most part, there's nothing we have to do to, to have that. It's just as soon as we produce the work, we have the copyright. You, that's correct. And it lasts for a long time. It lasts for the lifetime of the author plus 70 years. So something created today... Uh, by someone who lives for another 40 years, the copyright on that work will last 110 years, a <laughs> long time. Yes. And now, when people say they copyrighted a work, they usually mean that they registered the copyright. Registering is not required. You'll still own the copyright, but registering your copyright with the U.S. Copyright Office is a good idea. It, if you want to enforce your rights in the copyright, if you want to sue anybody for infringement, you're going to have to register the copyright first. And if you register it within three months of first publication, then you're able to recover attorney's fees and what are called statutory damages, which are automatic damages, whether or not you can prove lost sales. It's 
But even if you miss that three-month deadline, it still makes sense to register your copyright. It costs $35 if you do it online. You can also register blogs and web content, and I just did a post on that one. That's a little bit more complicated because the IRS considers web content and blogs to be unpublished because they are using a 1980s definition of publication. So you have to register web content as unpublished work, but it could also be registered. And then I always recommend that you do mark your work uh, with a C circle or the word copyright, your name or your pen name, and the, the date of first publication it's not required, but it just puts the world on notice that you own this work and helps people find you if they want permission to use your work. Okay. Now, you mentioned in the copyright, the, the registering the copyright, you mentioned the somewhat archaic process for doing that and, and why it, it's difficult to register unpublished work as a copyright. And I, I seem to recall in the book that the registration process required two copies, which I assume means two physical copies. Yes. If you have a print book, you send in two physical copies after you register it. If your work is only in electronic form, there is a process by which you can upload to the copyright office your electronic um, writings. Okay. All right. So you don't have to have a print book to to, to get a registered copyright. That's correct. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, We have this copyright to our manuscript. And as you mentioned, we have almost exclusive rights to this. And then I read that we can do things with with these rights. We can sell off pieces of these rights to other people. We can license uh, these rights for audiobooks or for foreign rights, things like that. Explain that to us. Well, think about a copyright as if you own an apartment building and you're going to rent out just rooms in that apartment building. One room might be audiobooks in English, another might be ebooks in Mandarin. So, what a license is, is merely a permission to use, equivalent to giving somebody the permission to use a a certain room in an apartment building. What you don't want to do is give somebody the key to every room in the apartment building for the next 110 years. And there are contracts out there that do that. So in the book, I try to explain what a license is, that a license can be exclusive, it can be non-exclusive, it can be limited by time, language, format, duration, geography, and that it's important for writers to get comfortable to re- uh, with reading the language of licenses, especially the what's called the granting clause, the granting of the permission. And I am convinced, and I, I'm an evangelist on this issue, that anybody who can master character, pacing, <laughs> the language of writing, mm-hmm. can can learn to read these clauses well enough to protect themselves. 
So in a typical contract that might be a gazillion pages, I may be exaggerating slightly, but they all seem like they're a gazillion pages to me, um, there are a few specific clauses that you really need to pay attention to. Some of them are, are fairly standard and boilerplate, but some of them are, uh, in the granting of rights as, as an example, um, are critical. Absolutely. It is, they're usually titled grant of rights or ownership or permission. And if you notice at the back of my book, I actually take language from the Amazon mm -hmm. contract and other contracts. And I say, and I take them phrase by phrase and I say, this is what this means. Um, and then I give some, an example and I and I on my blog I give examples of contracts to avoid. If you find really aggressive or author unfriendly phrases in the grant of rights provision, you don't need to read the rest of the contract. You know this is a contract you don't want to sign. So don't but don't start at the beginning where they have definitions that go on and on and on because you'll be you'll fade long before you get to the critical provision. Go straight for the grant of rights section, and then go to what I the termination section, which is if this doesn't work, how do I get out of it and mm -hmm. get my rights back? Those are the two provisions that are most important. And if you don't understand, uh, get some help. There are. Many lawyers will help uh, writers and other artists. There are organizations that help. There are websites. Um, it's particularly if the question is very specific and direct, and we can answer it often off the top of our head. Now let's get to images. I, I use a lot of royalty-free images. And you gave a definition of royalty-free in there that I didn't understand. I thought the definition was free of royalty, and, and that's not the case, I guess. Oh, it's marketing terms. <laughs> the royalty is paid up front. If okay. you're talking about stock images right. that you pull off mm -hmm. uh, Shutterstock or Dreamstime, you're paying one a one-time fee, usually quite inexpensive, and then you don't pay any more royalties. Uh, that's just a marketing thing okay. where they say right. it's royalty-free. All right. Now, the thing that scared me when I was reading through it is I, every week I get one of these royalty-free images and I use it as a part of the, the interview blog post. And I have never, ever downloaded or printed out an agreement for any of those. Should I be doing that? I would do that. The problem is there is a, a company that's very aggressive about searching the internet for images that it, it owns or it licenses out and sending demand letters for hefty sums. Mm -hmm. It's Get, Getty Images owns, they say, about 80 million images, mm -hmm. and they aggressively search the web. And if they find an image that they own or, or that they control, they will send you a bill for $2,000 for using their image without authorization. What I've heard is that they're somewhat sloppy about whether you've actually, there's a record that you've bought that image, maybe from a company they acquired. So to avoid that possibility, at least keep your receipts mm -hmm. or some evidence that you you got permission to use this image in a legitimate way. Okay, that that would be 
shocking to get to get the two thousand dollar bill in the mail for an image that you used a year and a half ago on a blog post and and not know what to do. So that was. I, I'm going to have to create a new Manila folder that says uh, <laughs> that's labeled licenses for images. Well, for instance, if you're getting your images from Dreams Time, you only need to download their license one time, and then every time you buy or you download an image from them, they usually give you a little receipt or something, or they email it to you. Mm-hmm. Just keep that receipt okay each all right. time all right i prefer to buy one of these images from a stock image company because being an attorney no one's going to believe i shouldn't know better <laughs> <laughs> and I, and they they i know that they've gotten the release if there's a recognizable face um it's just that's a risk that for three or four dollars to get an image, it's right. I, I'm willing to pay that to not take the risk that somehow this image might belong to somebody else. Now, there's another form of licensing for images called Creative Commons, and within Creative Commons, there are multiple license types. It's all very confusing, but it is also possible to find. Um, Images where the the creator has granted a, li- a license for anyone to use them for specific purposes, and that you can use those without paying for them. Correct. What Creative Commons is is a nonprofit organization, and they created a series of icons. And if you have some work and you put this icon at the bottom of it, you're telling the world that they may use that work under certain conditions, and that depends upon the icon. Maybe it's it's non-commercial only. Maybe you can use it, but you can't change it. Maybe you can use it, but if you change it, you have to make the changed work available under a Creative Commons license. Um, it's Wikipedia is a great example. Wikipedia, the the content that's original to Wikipedia is available for anybody to use under a Creative Commons license, You'll, the icons at the bottom of the page. Some things on Wikipedia are not available under a Creative Commons license, some of the images or some of the direct quotes, but their discussions of particular information are available under a Creative Commons license. There are other examples. The White House has a web page full of images, and those are available for anybody to use because they've designated them and given them a Creative Commons license. Okay. All right. Now, in the CAM acronym that we used earlier, that we talked about earlier, one of the A is avoiding scams and lawsuits. So let's get into, uh, we're not going to go directly into scams, but we're going to talk about the different forms of the, the different ways of self-publishing, uh, whether you okay. do it yourself or you use a service company to do it, and some of the things to look out for uh, with with all of the different options you consider. Yes, and there are more options all the time. It, they range from these full-service, what are called self-publishing companies that offer packages of editorial design, marketing, and distribution ranging from $199 to $10,000 and up. I And they make it sound like to do it yourself is so hard and they can make it so easy. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I encourage people to be skeptical about these companies. Many of them have terrible reputations for overcharging and providing substandard services. So do your homework. Uh, if, if you really think you want to go with a company that's going to do all the work for you, there are resources out there. I've mentioned some of them in, in my book. Mm -hmm. uh, there are resources to help you distinguish the good ones from the bad ones. You could also, the other extreme is you can hire freelancers and do it yourself. Pretty much like being your own general contractor and if you're building or remodeling your home. So you would hire an editor, a designer, uh, someone to convert to various, the, the text to various e-book e formats. Mm -hmm. It takes more work, uh, but ultimately, being that I like control, it, I think it's a more satisfying process and you'll get a better result because nobody cares about your book as much as you do. And so you're going to keep working at it till it's the way you want it to be. If you're working with a freelancer, you'll be able to call the person doing the work directly and work with them in a more creative and I think more productive manner. And then what you do is once you have print-ready cover and print-ready interior, you upload it to Create Space, which is affiliated with Amazon, mm -hmm. or Ingram Spark, which is affiliated with Ingram, or you can go to a private printer and print it yourself. Now, there, there's also a lot of people doing something in between. There are a lot of book shepherds or book consultants or small companies that are helping authors find the right freelancers and helping them manage the process. Those look very intriguing to me. I have not analyzed any of these companies yet because they're, they're evolving as we speak. Mm -hmm. But for somebody who wants to do it themselves but is intimidated by the process or doesn't have the time to, for the process, interviewing and finding the, right, finding the right consultant might be the right answer. That would certainly smooth the process a little bit. You you made a point in the book, and I, I'll I'll mangle this phrase completely, <laughs> um, but it was essentially there are a lot of people out there that promise things that are vague. They're they're promising results, and they charge you for those results, but you don't necessarily. There's no guarantee that they're going to get them. Um, some of those could fall into the scam category. Uh, you, I think the example you used was social media consultants. And, you know, that can be kind of scammy or it can be really valuable if you just don't have the time to do this and you're just hiring another person to help you do this to save the time so that you can do other things. So some, something that could be scammy on one end might be a valuable service on the other end. How do you determine what's what? I think actually so, social media consultants can be helpful if you're unfamiliar with social media and you don't have time. Where Some of the ones that I find really problematic mm -hmm. are uh, the things that offer to have you come to a book fair, like an hour sitting at their table signing books at a book fair for $1,000. You have to think, how many books oh would I have gosh. to sell? <laughs> so you have to think, realistically, how many books do I have to sell to, to pay for that? 
um, for that service. Wow. Uh, there are people, anybody who overpromises, uh, just like if you went to a car salesman and he promised that this book, I mean, this book, <laughs> this car was never going to get a ticket and it was never going to run out of gas and it was never going to have a flat tire and all the girls would be chasing you. (laughs) (laughs) Approach approach these offers with the same skepticism as you would approach a car salesman. Um, That just because you don't understand how to get readers, they may not understand it either. Uh, There's no sure way to sell books by the boatload or become a bestseller. You, it takes a lot of uh, throwing a lot of seeds out there and hoping one becomes a tree. So how does, so I talk about some scams that, or some, I call them myths, that they mm-hmm. actually deliver. You do get your hour sitting at the table signing books at the conference, or you do get your name on a particular list of speakers, but no, the sales bump doesn't result from it. It's just be very cautious about promises. Check people's references. Research the name to see whether they've been called out for some unethical conduct. See whether the company, um, how long the company's been in business. Some of these people seem to start a new business every few months. And then what's nice about the world of writers is that we're quite a community. So if Mm -hmm. you post something on Twitter or Facebook or Google Plus and you ask people, has anyone ever heard of this? Has anyone tried this? Chances are you'll get dozens of people responding to you with their thoughts. Okay. If I'm I'm dealing with one of these self-publishing service companies and they promise that they can get my books into a bookstore. Is that something I should believe? You shouldn't. What they, all they do is they make your book available in the catalogs where the bookstore buyers may, may find your book. But a self-publishing writer is competing against the sales teams of the major publishing companies. And, and among the tools those sales teams have is that they give cash incentives to stores to feature books on tables or in the store window. Uh, most of self-publishing writers don't have the resources to hire a sales team and to give incentives. So that promise of getting you into bookstores is a myth. It's, it, 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 bookstores can order your book if someone comes in and they want it, but they're really unlikely to order it in advance. Now, what you can do, and I do, and many writers do, is go to your local bookstores and ask if they'll take your books on consignment. Um, many reputable bookstores are quite happy to help support their local writing community. And a consignment is they, you still own the book, but they'll let you put it on their shelves and you split the sales price. Usually the author gets 60% and the bookstore gets 40%. Okay. Now you mentioned Ingram Spark earlier. If you publish through Ingram Spark, do they get you into the Ingram catalog? Yes, they do. So that's another way of getting your books, at least in a location where bookstores could order them. It's it's highly unlikely that they will, but at least it's possible. 
and in create space if you elect to have what's called expanded distribution okay that gets you into the catalogs as well all right let's talk about isbns you recommend getting ISBNs. A lot of people don't get ISBNs. And I have a hard time saying that because I'm old and I've been in the technology business for a long time. So I always think of ISDN. It's ISBN. Okay. Why should we get them? Why should we buy ISBNs? Well, an ISBN is a designation, a number that's specific to your book and a particular edition of your book and a particular format of your book. It's a way for people to who want to order your book to be able to find it uh, by its ISBN. They are ridiculously expensive in the United States to buy ten a block of ten of them costs. I think it's now up to two hundred and ninety five dollars. The benefit of ha- buying your own ISBN is that if you have a book and you want to publish it through Ingram Spark, because bookstores prefer to buy from Ingram, and you want to publish the same book with the same ISBN through CreateSpace, and you want to order 200 copies that you sell yourself uh, through your website, you can only do that with those very using the same ISBN through those various outlets if you own that ISBN. Okay. If if you decide to use CreateSpace and you use one of their ISBNs, the free ones will say the publisher is CreateSpace. Mm-hmm. Then they have a $10 one which you can then say the publisher is your name or your imprint name. But you can't use that same ISBN through Ingram Spark and through a private printer. You could only use a CreateSpace ISBN at CreateSpace. I will say that this, I get a lot of people telling me it's a, that, that they're perfectly happy to use the CreateSpace ISBN and they'd rather spend their money on design. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say this is something that if you can afford it, I think this is a better idea for a writer. But if you're just getting started and you don't want to have the expense of buying 10 ISBNs for almost $300, um, then maybe you don't need it right at the beginning. All right. Well, that sounds like good advice. I've got one last question, and this is a blog. This is based on a blog post that you wrote. I think it was a guest post for someone else, and I, I, I apologize. I can't remember who for, but it had to do with website privacy policies and the fact that in some states, yours, for example, it's actually a legal requirement to have one. Um, what should we all know about privacy policies for our websites? You should have one, and they don't have to be um, that complicated. You you need to provide information on what kind of information you collect, how you use it, how you store it, and how you share it. Now, it, I guess if you don't collect any information, if you have a website that just sits there and you don't collect addresses for e for newsletters and you don't take comments then you don't need a privacy statement but if you take comments and people have to sign in or give a name or you have a newsletter and you're collecting email addresses you should have a privacy statement there are a lot of them available online people are you they can copy mine if they would like to <laughs> to i i'm fine with that and that was a post i did for nina amir that's, that's right. probably yes. where you saw yes. it and i say in that post 
You may copy mine, and some people have, and they've sent me little notes thanking me. Well, I'm going to. By the time this goes okay. live, a version of your privacy policy will be on my website. Well, thank you. I'm glad to help. <laughs> thank you. Uh, it may be one of these things no one ever looks at, mm-hmm. uh, but it just... It takes 10 minutes, set it up. Yes, it's another one of those better safe than sorry kind of things. All right, we're running out of time. What else should I have asked you that I neglected to ask? Uh, well, the last thing I want to say is writers tend to get very nervous about using real people in their writing. Okay. And uh, I'd like to say to writers, there are you know, maybe a million books printed each, published each year, and out of that, there are a few hundred defamation cases. But every year, there are tens of thousands of writers who sign bad contracts. Defamation and privacy claims are really kind of the extreme case, and you know, be aware of the extreme case, but your bigger risks are not taking the time to research the people that you're working with and to look at your contracts. Uh, that's where you're much more likely to make a mistake. So take the time and, and educate yourself about those things. Okay, now that brings up one question that I've had for a while now, and I, it, it didn't even occur to me to ask you, but I'm going to ask now since you brought that up. What about using real places like a restaurant that's around the corner from where you live in your books? Uh, legally, it's fine to mention restaurants, celebrities, people, real things and events in your work. Where it crosses the line into being a problem is if, for instance, you have a murder in that restaurant or something, or you people are poisoned in a restaurant, that even though it's fiction, mm-hmm. the restaurant is likely to... Uh, get upset and may they may go after you saying that it was... that you made a statement of fact that was defamatory and that damaged their reputation. So uh, if you're going to be uh, somehow putting any information out there that might be damaging to the restaurant or to the person that you name, change the name. Okay. So if you're going to have someone die of food poisoning, have that be in a fictional restaurant. (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't put it at McDonald's. Yeah. (laughs) Probably asking for trouble. And the other caveat is don't make it appear that if you're using the name of, again, a restaurant, a person, a trademark, don't make it appear that somehow you're related or affiliated or endorsed by them. If you just happen to mention that your character wears Nike sneakers, that's fine, but don't name your book the Nike sneaker stories or something like that that make it sound as somehow you're affiliated. That's going to invite a lawyer letter. Well, Helen, thanks so much for your time today. Your book is The Self-Publisher's Legal Handbook. What's the best way for people to follow your work or to to reach you? I have a website, helensedwick.com, H-E-L-E-N-S-E-D-W-I-C-K. And you can find me on that website and contact me through the website. And I also have a blog there. I do send out newsletters sporadically. It's on my to-do list. It never gets to the top. Uh, my book's available at Amazon. I also have some short e-books that are just focused on getting permission to use, in one case, images, in the other case, lyrics. Uh, and I'm there to help you. Um, I'm committed to writers and doing what I can to 
keep them, as I say, at their desks and out of court. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like to find out more about the show or anything we mentioned during this episode, just check out the website at theauthorbiz.com. You can also subscribe to the show at the site by clicking the big green subscribe button or at iTunes or Stitcher. If you have comments or suggestions, please leave them at the site or you can email me at authorbiz at gmail.com. I'm Stephen Campbell, and I hope you'll join us again next time.